Welcome to the Making Kids Count podcast brought to you by Kentucky Youth Advocates, where we sit down with policymakers, community leaders, and youth to discuss ideas to make Kentucky the best place to be young. Now here's your host, Terry Brooks. This is Terry Brooks, and today on Making Kids Count, I'm joined by Brent McKim, president of the Jefferson County Teachers Association. Brent has spent time in the classroom as a math and science teacher. Currently, he is serving in his 15th year as president of JCTA. He also is an active member and leader at the national level through the National Education Association. Brent, thanks for joining us today. Uh, I always try to be transparent with listeners, and I think you know over the years that uh, I regard you as a, a real thought leader on uh, education, especially education reform. Uh, you and I, I think, have lots of conversations on lots of issues, and I always find you uh, thoughtful and open, and that's why I'm especially pleased that you're joining us today. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here, and I certainly appreciate the very kind words. Well, Brent, as I indicated in the uh, intro, both formally but maybe even more important informally, uh, you are a, a real leader. Uh, you're a leader within the, the Teachers Association, but really in a broader arena of public education. Uh, some of our listeners may have picked up on a trend line that I do, which is if I'm talking to a leader of note, uh, I inevitably begin by saying, How'd you become the leader you are? Uh, who were the individuals or what were the forces that uh, influenced your leadership philosophy? Well, I would say um, a huge driving factor uh, for me was that I cared very deeply about educators having a voice in their profession. And I cared, uh, I was wonky enough to care a lot about some of the details in the policy, particularly with regard to teaching and learning. So I think at the heart of most leaders is caring passionately, and that drives you to, uh, to get involved and to, to roll up your sleeves and do the work. Uh, one of the things that most befuddles me, and we're, we're kind of moving on to, to broader areas, is, is frankly, I think most people do not accurately perceive everything JCTA is involved in. Uh, you probably know that more than I do. Uh, you know, and, and I understand the, the labor part of that where you and districts negotiate things like uh, how many faculty meetings can you have and how long can those be, which, which we understand. But I, I frankly also think that JCTA may not get the credit it merits as a, a lever for innovation. Uh, I know one of my biases is uh, the sense that the toughest schools and the most vulnerable kids need master teachers, master principals. Uh, I think you and uh, Superintendent Polio in Louisville made a real move forward recently. Uh, do you mind spending a little time talking about what's cooking? Uh, because I think it's a, a really innovative approach to giving uh, those vulnerable kids the best shot they need at, at being learners. Sure. Um, well, we're really proud of our most recent contract that we negotiated with the district. We are both a professional association of educators, uh, almost all of whom have at least a master's degree, 
And at the same time, we are their collective bargaining representative, so we negotiate uh, a labor agreement Those with the faculty meetings. <laughs> <laughs> yes, with the nuts and bolts. And um, <clears throat> one thing that I think we're fortunate to have is we have a very mature contract, meaning that we've had a contract in some form or another uh, since the 1970s, and it is pretty stable meaning that we're not generally uh, arm wrestling uh, over the minutia and we're able to focus more on innovations and what we can do to make a difference with regard to student success and outcomes. And we, we had a shared interest between the district administration, the school board, and the teachers association to try to figure out what were some of the things that we could do with our most struggling schools that are serving our most challenged student populations to help them help students succeed. And a big part of that is to try to have a very stable teaching force in those schools. Uh, Because if you have a lot of teacher turnover, then you're sort of always starting over every year. Uh, It's hard to build a team and hard to sort of do the 101 and then the 201 and the 301 on whatever the the uh, initiative is that you're trying to put in place because you're kind of always caught up doing really a churning phenomenon exactly yeah. <clears throat> so some of the things that we did was uh, we try to look at what impacts that certainly one straightforward uh, thing that occurs to a lot of people is compensation so we built into the uh, current contract uh, an additional stipend for uh, staying at a priority school if you are there to get that stability. That gradually over time increases. Uh, some one-time additional stipends to, for an experienced teacher with seven years or more of experience to transfer into a priority school. And then uh, to help teachers stay there, uh, we have extra supports for them. So we built in language saying that they could get additional professional development. They could get together as a grade group team or a department and say, we'd like to, we think we could be more effective if we had this professional development, they can request that. And there's uh, funding set aside to support that. Uh, Similarly, we built in five additional days um, for professional learning, professional development of the staff. Those are five paid days. So that's also some additional compensation for the educators And it's also an opportunity for them to build their capacity to have the skills they need to be effective with the students that they have at those schools uh, that um, may need additional supports beyond just the the typical learner. So those are some things. There are a number of other things we did, but those are just some examples of the things that we built in to the agreement to make those uh, locations more attractive uh, to both go to and stay at and to equip the teachers that are there to feel like they are being successful and making a difference. Well, I, I loved it because to me it was one of those win-win-win deals where we, you know, so often I think that uh, folks tend to think about uh, student interest and adult uh, efficacy being different. And in in this case, it was the same. Uh, We're going to get into the scene in Frankfurt, but I want to ask you two questions before that. One, and uh, you know this is coming because you know I've had many conversations. I I think one of the most interesting perspectives on what we need to do to close learning gaps that I've heard 
is a, a Brent McKim axiom, which is around teacher expectations or lack thereof for kids as learners. Uh, can you riff just a little bit about how you came to that and what it means to you? Sure. I think that um, teaching can be uh, discouraging. And I think one of the challenges we have is that it's um, uh, it's easy uh, to uh, question what a student is really able to do. And um, and there can be cultures that develop over time where a school may come to believe, well, our students just can't do this. And um, there, there are occasionally opportunities uh, to sort of disrupt that belief structure. And you kind of have to see it with your own students. And like, for example, um, uh, several years ago, uh, the Teachers Association identified a particular math program where they brought in a, uh, a math specialist uh, with a mathematics degree into elementary schools to team teach an extra period of math with the teacher. And what they would do is they would go into classrooms that would normally be classrooms that would be remediated or slowed down or maybe do the same thing over a slower period or you know a longer period of time and instead of remediating they would actually accelerate the learning and on the front end uh, some of the teachers would say you got to be crazy because you know my kids came to me in fourth grade and they weren't even at a second grade level and you're talking about actually trying to teach algebra to a fourth grader. And that just doesn't, you don't know what you're dealing with. And yet they were able to go into those classes and they made it interesting and challenging. And uh, by the end of one week, kids that were never participating were engaging and participating. And it was the teacher's students. And I remember one uh, middle school educator this is my favorite part after this this particular educator was a 25 year veteran uh, math teacher had been department chair for quite some time and after uh, seeing this it was sort of a a one-week pilot to see if the district wanted to invest in the program Uh, she on day five had seen such a dramatic difference in her students she was saying to the uh, folks from that particular initiative, um, I cannot teach Monday the way I taught the month, the Friday before you came. Uh, you have to help me uh, change my approach, my pedagogy, so that I can uh, teach in this way that connects so much better with the kids. It was her kids, and it sort of, I think, suspended her disbelief uh, because the, she saw her kids doing it, and she was, and it was really powerful to see a veteran teacher say, "I need to change really quickly to pick up some of these things that really work." And so, I think sometimes um, that um, revelation that there are some things that really do work, even with very challenging classes, is uh, is really one of the the belief structures. One of the things that we that we have to, I think, uh, address in order to get to a better place. Well, what, what I love about that, uh, what I'm calling the McKim Doctrine, is uh, that's really based uh, on a hypothesis of creativity and commitment. 
to me, there's nothing that reflects the antithesis of creativity and commitment more than high-stakes accountability and assessment, which is all about conformity and compliance. Uh, we had a, our good education colleague, Dr. Leon Munahan, on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, and uh, Leon was talking about that he thought that uh, the freight train around high-pressure stakes began nationally with the release of A Nation at Risk, uh, President uh, George W. Bush uh, initiated uh, No Child Left Behind, which I don't think the intention was that, but the result was even higher stakes accountability. Uh, I think President Obama's administration with Race to the Top made it even worse. And uh, again, the current administration, this is not an editorial, but very publicly sees even higher stakes accountability. Uh, you look at the scene in Kentucky. Uh, this is the 30th year of CARA, which began as uh, very authentic, very innovative innovations. We've now gone from labeling schools to grading schools to giving schools stars. Uh, as we record this, the uh, newest idea is to color code schools. But the bottom line is uh, it seems to me that a real barrier, unintended, but a real barrier is an accountability system that puts such enormous pressure. Uh, frankly, forget the professionals. Uh, I've got a bunch of grandkids in schools, and I know when testing is ready to happen because they start getting nervous. So from your perspective, uh, both nationally and statewide, uh, I mean, is there any hope, or are we just caught in this trap where we're going to keep ratcheting the pressure more and more. Uh, do you have solutions? Uh, do you agree with that hypothesis about accountability being counterproductive the way it's measured? Yeah, I certainly agree. The way we are doing accountability right now is counterproductive because <clears throat> at its heart, what we have now is very high stakes on very cheap multiple choice state tests. They're cheap on an individual basis, although if you they have to be because when you uh, pay for them statewide, they become very expensive, even though individually they're pretty cheap. Uh, and when you put high stakes on such a uh, minimalist assessment tool, you get all sorts of unintended consequences. Uh, and I think policymakers and parents and the uh, public have a reasonable expectation to say, that when they invest their tax dollars in our public education system, that we have we should have some way to be accountable for what's working and what's not, and try to make some assessment of that. But when you put super high stakes on just basically a test of basic skills in math and a test of basic skills in reading, and that's it, it tends to lower everything to the lowest common denominator and works against what is at the key of students being successful, which is engaging them in their own learning. It's a pretty alienating uh, experience that it promotes. Now, there are other ways to go about doing that. For example, <clears throat> in the early 2000s, when No Child Left Behind first uh, came into law, the state of Nebraska actually took a very different approach where they uh, their state Department of Education worked with school district uh, and higher ed partners to actually certify that every teacher 
could reliably create and score their own assessments with adequate reliability to be used instead of a multiple choice bubble test. That's actually a cheap way to go because you're not every year buying a ton of these uh, state tests. You're actually investing in building the capacity of the educators and then uh, using the assessments that they make uh, for the accountability purposes. And some may say, well, isn't an individual teacher uh, subjective? Well, I would say uh, if you look at how we score uh, ACT tests or uh, call it advanced placement tests, uh, AP testers, if they, they will come in, if it's an AP English exam, and 10 of them will get around a table and they will score marker papers until they can score very reliably, reliably with each other. And then that's how the advanced placement tests are scored. And it is um, very uh, consistent if you put invest in the the uh, training and the calibration of the scores. And you can do that with an entire state. And then the educators are designing assessments that fit perfectly with their instruction, and it creates a much more engaging learning experience. So I think you can do um, a, an accountability system with uh, very rigorous assessments that actually promotes engagement if you don't rely on basic skills, multiple choice, cheap tests. Yeah, no, and that's that's a great point. Diane Ravitch, who, uh, interestingly, I think the Bush administration and the Obama administration both respect it, just released a book, and the whole premise of that is teacher-made test create a national accountability system. So I think you're right on target. So I want to shift from this high-level uh, – discussion of uh, education philosophy. Let's get to the bottom lines in Frankfurt. A couple things that I'd like to ask you about. Uh, Your takeaway on uh, what Governor Bashir called an education budget. So as you sit and look at it, uh, what did he get an A on? What did he not get an A on? And what's incomplete? Uh, I think, you know, kudos to Governor Bashir for making public education pretty particularly K-12 public education, a priority in this budget. I think he was he was doing that with one hand tied behind his back because he knows that um, he can't it, – it's pointless uh, given the realities, the political realities that he faces. It's pointless to say – uh, I've built a billion dollars of new revenue into yeah, the budget, and lack here, of increased revenue. Yeah, right. He had he had a modest. I think the total new revenue package that his budget include included was uh, about 150 million dollars. And just to put that in perspective, the last state budget that was uh, passed included about 400 million dollars in new revenue. So that's actually more modest than the state budget from in terms of revenue growth or increased revenue, it's more modest than, than um, a couple of years ago. So I think given that he started with a, um, a realistic foundation in terms of how much he had to work with, he then made education a priority. He kept his campaign promise to propose a teacher raise of $2,000 over the biennium. Uh, to help with attracting and keeping teachers and um, increased funding for uh, the SEEK allocation. I know one concern is we haven't had textbook funding for years. He built in textbook funding for the first time in many years into the budget. 
additional uh, supports for uh, some fu- additional funding for uh, elements of the school safety bill that was passed last session and so forth. So I think he did uh, what he could. He also, I think, is really committed to investing in KCHIP, the early, you know, the mm-hmm. children's uh, health, health insurance mm-hmm. program. Uh, which is, you know, if a kid's sick, they just can't focus on their learning. So that's really valuable, too. So uh, I think he did a good job of what he had to work with. And he said, you know, he would have liked to have done more, but um, that there's still, you know, another biennial budget a couple of years down the road. So yeah. Okay. So, so you feel good about what's there, knowing the parameters of funding? Yeah, I think it, it does everything that you could and still remains realistically doable. So you gave me a great uh, entrance because when you mentioned KCHIP, uh, one of our hypotheses at KYA is that kids don't grow up in silos and economic well-being, health. Uh, those are real determinants of learning outcomes. Uh, we talk about that from a kid perspective all the time. Uh, I'd like you to just kind of uh, – I guess I'm asking you to amen our position, but teachers that I talk to just keep coming back with the, those non-cognitive factors if if a kid is in a traumatic home situation in poverty in poor health uh, talk just a little bit about the obvious how that impacts uh, what a teacher faces every day uh, so much of what uh, creates the greatest challenges for kids to succeed and and thereby force teachers to be effective with their kids is not about what happens in the four walls of the school, but what does or often what doesn't happen outside the four walls of the school. And that's where those kind of uh, supports are so important. The K-CHIP for kids who would not otherwise be able to get health care, some of the metro services that's provided by uh, metro government uh, for for the students and their families, um, and um, kudos to uh, Dr. Polio and the Jefferson County Board of Education for uh, putting a mental health professional in every building to help uh, kids deal with the trauma that so many of them come to school with. And, and also thank you to Kentucky Youth Advocates for uh, always being there to remind people that those outside factors are so important and we have to invest in them uh, if we're going to invest in the future of our kids. So that's yeah. a huge service that KYA provides. Yeah. Well, thanks. And again, just so you know, our listeners have heard, you know, one of the, the big areas that we continue to push is within those dimensions of school safety. I think the governor addressed facilities. Uh, we know there's law enforcement issues out there. Uh, our real hope also is that the behavioral and mental health services that you just talked about, we think are, are just so seminal to cultures that breed school safety. Absolutely. And there are things that you may not notice, but uh, if you go to any Jefferson County public school school building, uh, you have to now be buzzed to get in. The mm-hmm. doors are automatically locked and there's a, uh, a, entry system that has a video camera and a buzzer and uh, you have to like indicate your purpose and so forth. So I think there are some just real fundamental safety um, parameters like that doors that, that will lock so, on mm-hmm. the classrooms and, and the districts gradually um, phased 
many of those things that are in the Senate Bill 1 from last year, JCPS had already phased many of those things in already. So we were, I think, a little bit ahead of the curve on, on the facility yeah. side. I want to shift from Andy Bashir and the General Assembly to ask you one other kind of Frankfurt question. So you're sitting here talking to the State Board of Education, and uh, I think one of the under-discussed efforts underway right now is choosing the next Commissioner of Education. Uh, editorially, I'm not putting you on the spot, but uh, uh, watching every commissioner that we've had in Kentucky, it, it seems to me that we either get somebody who is really, really, really good or really, really, really ungood. Uh, I won't I won't name names, but uh, that's my hypothesis. So uh, you're talking to the state board, uh, not who, but what are the dimensions, what are the qualities, what are the characteristics that you hope to see in the next leader heading up the Kentucky Department of Education? Well, certainly we agree with the Kentucky Board of Ed that it needs to be a national search. If you do a national search, uh, it doesn't mean you may not wind up with someone from Kentucky, but it should be a national search. Valid, if it's a Kentucky and it validates that candidate. That's right. That's right. And, and I think it gives them um, a, a more s- solid platform to lead from. So it should be a national search. And I, I believe that it should be someone with some direct K-12 experience themselves. Ideally, uh, would love to see someone that was a, a classroom teacher and a building principal at, at some point in their mm-hmm. career so that they know the yeah. reality of what yeah. the policy's impacts yeah. will be. Uh, and uh, ultimately, I think we want someone who's collaborative that can bring all the different stakeholders together and build trust and someone who is an instructional leader that's respected, uh, that's about teaching and learning. I, I think it's more important to have a um, instructional leader in a lot of ways than a an administ- just sort of a, a manager. Mm-hmm. Um, we mm-hmm. need someone that gets teaching and learning and can make decisions informed by and based on their knowledge of teaching and learning. Great, great answer. I really agree with uh the two things I took away from that answer was uh, focus on learning uh, of this person. The other I, I really appreciate is authentic experience. I, I had shared uh, with a couple members of the board that I think one of the questions should be, uh, have you ever had to hire a football coach and chaperone a prom? And if the answer can't be yes, you, you shouldn't look at them. Brent, I really appreciate you joining us today. Uh, I also so appreciate your commitment to kids. Uh, and for being our guest on Making Kids Count. Uh, I'd like to remind our listeners to uh, stay in touch. We are in the throes of the uh, General Assembly. A reminder, for instance, listeners, that you can check out our blueprint for Kentucky's Children budget checklist on our website at kyyouth.org. Uh, We have a number of key issues. Uh, Brent, for instance, uh, as we record uh, the uh, potential for eliminating corporal punishment uh, in schools across Kentucky, uh, has moved out of the House and is going into the Senate. Uh, Listeners, we encourage you to stay up to date on those key issues. This is Terry Brooks, and thanks for listening to Making Kids Count. Thank you for listening to the Making Kids Count podcast with Terry Brooks. 
For more information and to listen to more episodes, visit kyyouth.org slash podcast. Kentucky Youth Advocates is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization who doesn't accept government money so that we can remain truly independent. To support this podcast and our mission as the independent voice for Kentucky kids, please consider making a gift at kyyouth.org slash donate.